Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Later in this hour, we'll have the second half of our conversation with Molly Keene of Cojourn. Right now, I'm going to talk about the book, The Power of Bad, by John Tierney and Roy F. Baumeister. I'm very interested in books that talk about the brain and behavior. I think that they can... Well, they can either enlighten or they can darken, I guess. And this is this is a mixed bag, but I think still worth reading. I found it a really good read in conjunction with what Molly Keene says about negative experiences, negative thoughts get lodged and locked in your brain in about 12 seconds. Positive experiences need at least 20. So what happens is we end up with a huge amount of negative experiences and negative messages. And if we want to start fighting back, one way to do that is not just to celebrate small wins, but to put on a timer and to celebrate small wins for at least 20 seconds. There's a real imbalance with the advice about taking the bad with the good. Negative bias is adaptive because it's better to be hyper alert around a bad thing than it is to be hyper alert around a good thing because good things are not immediate life or death. They are not a saber-toothed tiger or a mastodon coming to attack your group. A group safety is not ensured by one single good person, but you can all die as a result of one bad one. And it would be really nice if organizations, and yes, the police come to mind, really understood this. The book has a stat about apocalyptic predictions and our tendency to be attracted to them. A recent study found that 33% of American adolescents don't believe the planet will exist when they are adults. I do want to put a caveat to this, which is I'm in my 50s and I didn't believe it would outlast the Cold War. I thought we would all be nuked, and I was concerned about the environment too, but honestly, I didn't think that would end up becoming a problem, which is another kind of distortion. I'm assuming other people grew up like I did, meaning it was hard to take climate destruction as seriously as military aggression, because if we were all going to push the button and, and get bombed, then what difference did it make if there was another coal plant? That kind of anxiety, which we pass on. In fact, a lot of this book that is really good is about the passing on of anxiety through crisis industry that is deplorable and needs to be stopped and is harming us all. All my hopefulness in my life, and I'm very hopeful now, but all of it has occurred after the age of 25, because I had children in spite of feeling like maybe the world was never going to survive. Although by the time I was 25, we hadn't been nuked. It's kind of a little like apocalyptic religions, like, oh, the world didn't end. Maybe it's okay to continue. By that time, I had read more, which gave me more intelligence and more perspective. And then the other thing that happened is only in the past several years have I found how paralyzing nihilism and anxiety can be. I can't effectively work for change 
if I can't believe it will help. So a lot of times when we talk disdainfully about people not becoming involved or not being more active or being paralyzed or in some way disengaged, we need to talk a little bit less about the behavior and a little bit more about what is happening that you cannot find any reason to think there is a future. And while, yes, corporations and global entities have a kind of power and it's also easy to throw our hands up. I mean, I feel like this when it comes to recycling. We end up being told that individuals should recycle, but it ends up not making much of a dent because corporations are the massive major polluters. That is not where our power lies. Our power lies in us as social entities, especially if we coordinate, we can be very influential. Availability entrepreneurs, and I love this phrase, those are journalists, activists, academics, lawyers, politicians who capitalize on crisis and on the human tendency to gauge a danger according to how many examples are readily available to our minds. And I know I've covered this with other books about brain biases. So if we know someone who something awful happened to, say a medical malpractice, if we know people who that happened to, we tend to think of it as a bigger danger than something that didn't happen to somebody that we know. We also do this, and I think the journalism piece of this is especially critical. If I watch the local news and I see that the nearest big city, which is a solid 30 miles from where I live, has had a number of shootings, it is informative and I am very sad for what's going on there, but everything about it is out of my control. My voting is not going to matter to that city. All it does for me here and now is serve to make me feel unsafe and to elevate the dangers that actually don't exist near me, but do exist given the situation in that city. What I could use would be a filter version of that news where it's not about everyone going and barricade. I don't need to barricade 30 miles away. I do need to be informed about my, you know, state neighbors and the things that are going on. There's two very different kinds of information there. And it's possible that the death of the newspaper has really made this worse. Anyway, what happens that the authors talk about, uh, because fear makes us act politically, they've studied paranoia and overconfidence and how it leads countries into deeply stupid decisions like World War I and Iraq. They're called crisis crises hyped threats leading to actions that leave everyone worse off. One of the really interesting things they point out is how, you know, when there have been terrorist incidences, we have seen the video of those actions over and over and over, making us fearful from a long way away from anything we can do, like an out of control fear and making us also feel powerless more people die in the bathtub than die in terrorist incidences. But nobody is saying, seeing video of someone dying in a bathroom over and over and over. Now, this is a fairly recent book, but it is pre-COVID. And I have to say, one of the most appalling negligences of the last two years is how little we see 
and how little we are faced with the suffering that happens from the pandemic. I understand HIPAA laws, but I also understand that photojournalists need to be out there showing us the consequences. I can look at pictures from the pandemic of 1818, 1819, and I can see the boxes full of coffins just on and on and on as far as the eye can see. We're not seeing that. That's not being covered for whatever reason. That's not being considered by editors as necessary news. And without that, it's very easy to come in with an agenda that's telling people to not get vaccinated or other judgment calls that undermine people's and public health. Another really interesting example of this is that our streets have become by every metric safer, safer and safer and safer over the course of my life. And yet I could go on Facebook right now and in less than a minute, I could find just post after post after post of my peers saying it was all so much better when we were young. Remember when there wasn't this and there wasn't that? Yeah, but our streets have become safer and safer and safer, but we do not, we don't get that impression from the reports given back to us reflecting our world. So in the same way that you have to take 20 seconds to really appreciate a win in your life, to really celebrate something, The positivity ratio for your brain in terms of events is four to one. Three to one is break even, five is flourishing and sustainable, less than three is doom. And you can use this in your relationships. You can either overwhelm your relationship with good or you can eliminate the bad and eliminating the bad is the easier way to go. I did love this observation. Successful marriages are not defined by improvement, but merely by avoiding decline. And honestly, this is true of pretty much all relationships. It takes a lot of socializing to build a friendship with your neighbors, but only one or two bad encounters can turn them into permanent enemies. So the discovery is you do not have to work so hard. And this is something that I am very fortunate to have discovered very early on in my parenting was good enough is good enough. They do talk about intelligence in ways that I had to call BS on. The authors made statements about intelligence that is not fixed. It is not, they said they called it the best understood and most precisely measured psychological trait. And that is so far from the truth that it's ridiculous. But avoiding messing up a kid, just refraining from being violent, refraining from being abusive, refraining from being neglectful, those three things protect a kid's potential more than any amount of Mozart in the womb will. So give yourself a break in all relationships. Then there are a bunch of uh, suggestions. Don't overpromise. Don't expect credit for going the extra mile. I loved this. If a package is late, it causes real anguish. But if it's early by a couple days, people go, eh, great. Bad is in the eye of the beholder. And that reminded me of Ijeoma Uluo's So You Want to Talk About Race. It's racism if a person of color says it is. It's sexism if a woman says it is. What you do with that information is up to you. But denying it probably won't further this relationship. Put bad moments to good use. Think before you blame, which is right out of Brene Brown. 
there's a thing about attribution or error, which is drawing conclusions about someone's inner character based on behavior that's actually due to an external situation. And a good example is we see someone swerve on the road and we think they're drunk or a terrible driver only then to see there's a torn tire in the lane. And that blame becomes reflexive. I grew up in it just seeped in this, my own family, everybody's family that I need. I don't ever recall anyone having a default of being really gracious about not judging other people. Just don't. And there is a chemical hormonal response. And like a rock under a drip, we end up with a distorted outlook on life. It is actually bad for our health. The fearful brain from Lisa Feldman Barrett. The brain is the only organ that can tell itself stories, which means that it can really overreact to threats. The autonomic nervous system is aroused by both good and bad, but bad usually holds sway. And this becomes the physical embodiment of our mental patterns. They talk about a psychologist who works in high stakes fear environment with athletes and fighter pilots. And they talk a lot about CBT. I have thoughts with a capital T on this. CBT is extremely useful. And if it's working for you, great. But it has real limitations for certain groups of people. It has real limitations for trauma. A lot of it is about talking yourself down, talking yourself through. There's no mention about the double-edged sword of the survival mechanism that if you have endured abuse, you've been talking yourself down and talking yourself through and repressing the damage things that are doing to you so that you can appear happy, so that you can seem functional, so that you can show up at school the next day without screaming, talking yourself through to sort of psych yourself out is only going to help if you have the kind of support that you need. And you may need, if you have a background, if you have any kind of disability, if you have mental health issues, if you have sometimes physical health issues, because those often lead to mental stresses or any kind of trauma, this can be really self-negating for large groups of the population. A big chunk that I thought was super valuable about criticism and appearing professional. They talk about the, I will call it the crap sandwich, which is where you say something nice, you say something bad, you say something nice. It's honestly, there's a funny bit where they're talking about critics. And they talk about how they have a guy who who's from early last century who talks about how you can game the system and make authentic sounding feedback that just makes you look good and the other person look bad. I felt like the authors really accepted the excrement sandwich as a management technique, but it has been pretty well dismantled as being inauthentic and disingenuous. And I did feel like a lot of this advice on how to handle this kind of feedback could have been substituted with manage the work, not the worker. But I do think that getting unremitting negatives is threatening and the response is defensiveness. So noticing the good work of colleagues, noticing the good work of a team, that's all good leadership anyway, is to do servant leadership and put yourself last. I did like the advice, have someone else read your reviews. That's the best advice ever. Next chapter, I think, is a garbage. They talk about heaven and hell, carrot and stick, reward and punishment. Their suggestion is that punishment is more effective. And I believe the entire question is wrong. For one thing, the damage is there. So maybe your kid gets an A from 
a hyper-competitive tracking, shaming kind of system. Is A the goal? Is that what success is? And I know I can speak from a very privileged position here. I came from a school where most kids expected to go to college. I came from an area that is pretty racially homogenous. I get that. And so I certainly don't want to say that doing well academically does not open up all kinds of advantages to people who may otherwise be disadvantaged. What I'm saying is like saying that money will solve everything, grades don't solve anything. And I have a real problem if that is how success is defined. Shame takes a huge toll. Equating permissiveness in a school with like racial support isn't true either. And I just felt like they didn't understand how education does work. They were like, well, it's, we all thought it was bad to be super hard on kids, but it turns out that being super easy on kids is bad too. I don't think either of those situations is serving learners. The rules have to be clear. The route to changing the rules has to be clear. I don't agree that pointing out a student's mistakes is punitive. And they seem to think that that's the stick and that there are schools that are collaborative that don't point out kids' mistakes. Everything's super distorted. And the logic, even as they waved a handkerchief, oh, but of course we shouldn't go back to corporal punishment. But the whole chapter is basically an argument for corporal punishment. Here's the thing. Rewards don't work either. Meaningful work and meaningful is the key word here that has institutional support and accountability for learners and instructors and administration, that does work. And if you want to know more about this, I'll have a book in the notes called Punished by Rewards by Alfie Kahn. Rewarding kids seems to be like, again, they only have these false dichotomies. You're going to reward them or you're going to punish them. And we used to think punishing doesn't work, but rewarding them doesn't work. So punishing them must work. And I think that's just, no. I do think you can use the negative power of bad to erode something that's already been given. So that's the nudge exercises. There's actually a lot of, so the book nudge, there's a lot of the same kind of brain research that's in both books. And the example in nudge that I loved, I actually went and saw the author speak once. And he said, imagine I'm giving all of you a $5 bill. Yay. And then told half the room, you have to give that $5 to the other half of the room. Economists would say nothing in this room has changed. But half the room is now feeling really pissed off. And what's funny is that the half that got the extra five dollars just goes, oh nice I can get another Starbucks. They don't feel half as pleased as the loss side feels pissed off. That's part of this whole brain and cognitive negative bias. Emotions are infectious. And there's a great bit in this, particularly about the workplace, about how negative emotions can infect all workers in a given area. And that's different. There's an example in here that's pretty funny about a big open office where this guy was so caustic and so contemptuous that when he went and took a big leave of absence, everybody's doors were open, all sorts of 
great work got done. And then when he came back, it all resumed back to its its former closed downness. There's a really good book that I'm going to read and review and I because of FCC, I think. Anyway, I'll call it Don't Hire the A-Hole. And they actually reference this. Adding a bad member to a team has four times the impact as adding good members to a team. It's four to one again. You're better off firing your star salesman who is an a-hole and keeping the ones that are good enough. You will do better as a business than if you keep that a-hole and churn through the damage that that person does to the organization all the time. And I don't care where in the organization that person is. They will do damage to everyone. People and team managers in particular, this is not in the book, but this was a takeaway for me, need to know how to make and keep boundaries. We're never really taught that. We're lucky if we're taught that. We need to recognize and call out red flags publicly, gracefully. In other words, if we have someone who takes over, talks over meetings, how do you deal with that person publicly and gracefully and privately and effectively? And team managers have to have a path to do something about it, to support and coach, or how to ease out the door. Nancy Klein's book, Time to Think, is one of the ways to learn how to gracefully do some of this that you can structure meetings. Sometimes the a-hole isn't really an a-hole. For example, that guy that was so caustic and contemptuous, he may be on the receiving end of poor treatment in this job and feel so powerless to do anything real about it that this is where it leaks out. You can run meetings, you can learn boundaries, you can learn frameworks where you allow that person to fully articulate and think. And in Time to Think, there's great examples of, in particular, someone who is a real problem, solving the problem by finally being heard and not being as angry, not being as caustic afterwards. People thought he had a complete personality change, but it had to do with whether or not his concerns, his real concerns about the safety of a product were listened to. The internet amplifies the negativity effect. I completely agree. I do think the crisis crisis is a much stronger place. And I think they did better work here, the authors, that crisis mongering is profitable. It's very sexy. I keep thinking about the weather, like years, years and years and years ago when I was a kid, weather was a thing that just, they came on and they said if it was going to rain or not. There was no like dramatic storm tracker team. Doom, 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 doom. They, that comes with the weather channel. That comes with this idea that like you could get the weather very sexy. And a lot of times we hear in this very connected world about super dramatic weather somewhere very far away. And it attracts our attention because it's very negative and it raises our concern and our fear. And yet it was just so that we could be advertised to. I think if nothing else, this book makes an excellent case for having a better brain diet. Notice your feeds. When you see someone really getting off on 
the awfulness of the world when you see a, particularly if you're looking at a media outlet, mute them or bring them, just look at that stuff less. Just don't desensitize yourself by watching it all the time. It's very easy for it to overcome our regular days. We can use the power of bad for good. We can, just noticing this stuff can help. And I was thinking a lot about this, just knowing how crisis mongers and fear mongers are working and why. And the reason why is for your eyeballs and your attention so that you can be advertised to. You are being trained to come back to the awful stuff and and your brain hooks into it so hard because in fact even online people are doing way more good things like the photos of their cats and making groups around shared cultural passions than awful things but the awful things are marketable it ends on a note that's really interesting to me as i watch the republican party disintegrate it's from a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds from 1841 by a Scottish journalist, Charles McKay. Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. And I think that's quite true. So overall, it's pretty good. Although there's a bit that's really not so great. The information on negative negativity bias is so essential to our understanding of our brains, though, and our the society that we've created that I still recommend it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. Next up, the second half of our conversation with guest Molly Keene of Cojourn on sharing gentle accountability, making deep connections, and learning from each other. There is the, there are all the numbers to back up that like people are lonely, but you know, old people are super lonely too. Like mm-hmm. they may have made the friendships, but I remember when, um, I had sort of an honorary grandmother and she lived to be a hundred and I don't know, around about 85. I just remember sitting at breakfast with her and she was like, all of my friends are dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like, well, I mean, we're kind of friends. And she was like, but you know what I mean? Like the people who really knew what my life was like for most of it, they're all dead. And I honestly don't know why I'm still here. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know. Yeah. It might have been kind of nice for her to have more of a, I mean, I, I went and visited her periodically, but nothing regular. Um, 
Oh, I'm loving this, these ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my brain is going. Well, mostly for me, it was it was funny because I love the idea. I love that you guys did that work around racial justice and George Floyd. And the, the my first thought was how I would love to do something like this with really low stakes, <laughs> really like low all the barriers except for the one in which we are radically different. Yeah, and, but we're d- both doing something very low stakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember um, I remember a woman once in a in a community group I was in, and I was asking her to volunteer, and she looked at me and she said. I need to know when my cup is filled up and my cup is very, very small. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so like that, <laughs> let's, let's have two very different cups, but let's keep them small. <laughs> and that's really, really, really neat. And so are you finding that your Venn diagram of like professional and creative are really starting to fully overlap or do you still do, do you still play accordion or? I do. Yes. I've been trying and I'm trying to get back into it. I have a friend who just got uh, she I have a red accordion. Her name is Betty and a friend just got a red accordion as well. And so I'm having someone to play with. Carl moved to South Carolina and the other band. It was a kind of a family band. It was his two other brothers and his dad (laughs) and the brothers have relocated as well. So I'm not currently playing music with other people, but really trying to keep up those sides of me because it's so it's so important. Yeah. 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 Do you have any other, do you have any other places that you really, you know, spend creative time? You know, I'm trying to discover some more. I, um, it's funny. My mother's cousin just sent me a giant cross, uh, I have pugs and she sent me this pug cross stitch pattern. And I haven't picked up, like done that since I think I was like 13. I did it once with my grandmother and I've started cross-stitching and it is bringing me so much joy. It is so like relaxing and methodical. And I love that like a kind of a distant family member made it for me. Uh, That's been really sweet. And, you know, I like to like make little creative art pieces around my house sometimes, but I, I, you know, the, yeah, the semester's kind of gotten me (laughs) this year. I just haven't, I haven't made the time for it as much as I would love to. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, there's always going to be stuff involved. What do you wish you had known? I, I, I Back to the Cojourn project. What do you wish you had known when you started out? <sighs> I think I struggle a lot with self-doubt or trusting my thinking just in general in life. I think it's one of the ways I got hit by sexism or just my own, you know? And so I think early on, I wish I would have really fiercely believed in the value Mm. of this because there are so many places where I've seen it really help support myself and so many other people. And I wish I would have offered it or not been so hesitant or tentative about offering it in different settings where I, that I was involved in. Mm. And how do you see it playing out in the future? Like, what do you, what do you want for it? Mm. My dream would be to um, be able to scale it more, you know, and have organizations be able to support folks to get paired up and working 
toward different goals. And I, this 12 week cohort that we've been experimenting with, I, I would love to be able to have so many people doing it that we can have different themes, mm. you know, like a cojone for parents where folks do it and then they can come together or cojone for oh. artists or cojone for, you know, whatever folks who just retired where folks can both get the connection of their cojone partner each week, but then also a community that they, you know, every month or six weeks can connect around a specific area. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, and climate cojone for climate action is a big area that I'm excited about thinking about and wanting because it's such an area where I think we all need to be thinking and making changes and being involved. And it can be such a helpful way to help people navigate that work. Well, it's it's interesting because when you say climate, I, I don't know why I thought of this, but well, last year for big presidential elections, I thought I don't do enough. And I went and I volunteered for like voter check in at, you know, the tiny little voting town hall near me mm. but cojourn for like just tiny political action <laughs> yeah. just teeny tiny just like can you you know hold a clipboard for something just something that makes it because one of the things that you notice right away is um you know the age of the people involved is pretty old <laughs> you know it would it would be really neat to try to I don't know. I, I think a lot of times people don't get involved because they just really don't have any support, honestly. Yeah. They really think it's something other people do. And mm-hmm. does Kojin end up having a mentoring piece to it? You kind of said within the org itself, you, you're sort of training people to train people, but... Yeah. And within organizations, like I know UMass, especially for students, they they had talked about having some people like the mental health services area trained as mm-hmm. and coaches to help support, you know, students potentially with their cojourn relationship or if they need help. But we don't currently have, you know, a um, set organizational structure for that. Mm. And it might not even be the same, the right business model. Mm-hmm. Just having to think about sort of the overlap of people who do know how to do something and people who don't, although then it would turn into an unequal relationship. So it really, it, it really doesn't quite. Right. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I see what you mean. I thought, yeah. yeah. And going back to the political action, you know, I think Kojur can help people do something that they're scared of as an experiment one particular week that feels low stakes. Yeah. And so, you know, I know in the fall I have like, I'm so scared of, phone calls mm. <laughs> like have a thing about it I can I'm much better going door-to-door canvassing even though that scares me a little bit but there's something about you know making those calls and so I made kosher goals around it and I got myself mm. to phone banking just to you know to get out the vote before the election or other things a few times and you know even make goals around how I was going to do it like setting up myself for success where I had a sheet of paper and I, I did a checklist of every call I made and everyone who hung up on me and then anyone I spoke to and I had little affirmations on the sheet like you can do this because I was so scared but it helped having told someone I was going to do it rather than I think if it was just me here in my house alone I may not have actually followed through and done it right I mean honestly my first thought is I know if it was me probably not mm. <laughs> And I think there are probably a lot of people who would say that. There, <laughs> so, really you know. is, there really is something, 
somebody did a study or a number of studies, and I heard about it on NPR on maybe Invisibilia or one of those sort of like brain and design things. But it started up by talking about Milgram experiments and the way in which they're not really replicable and the way in which what they really failed to, to sort of grasp was how influential we are on one another. And there was a, there was a scientist who was trying to replicate the Milgram experiments, obviously not super unethically like that guy did, but in terms of, you know, how, how vulnerable we are to authority. And so she did, she set up an experiment that she said terrified the living crap out of her, which was you went onto a crowded subway car and you asked someone for their seat. You don't have a reason. You don't have a right. You don't have a preamble. You just say, do you mind if I sit there? Or can I sit there? Or she had, she said that was like the one experiment that people outright quit. And and when she set it up, she, she was like, it scared the crap out of her. But she also was like, because that's what it is. It's a high stakes thing. And, and then one of the students that quit said, you try it. And she went and she, it's something like she did it, but then she like had to get off and throw up. Like it was just so, so hard to do. But she said, almost everybody gave up the seat. If you could make yourself do it. People were like, okay. Wow. And and she had these interesting conclusions from that and a couple other things that she did just about how we have no idea how influential we are. Mm. And I I was like, I don't know what to do with that information, but I do find it really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Right. (laughs) Not to mention the value of sort of challenging yourself to do stuff that scares you. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I talked about the spirit of celebration earlier, but one of the other core components of Codron is the spirit of self-compassion. Do you want to tell me the eight or do you want me to tell people that they should definitely look for your website and get your book? Or should I oh, sure. I can, I can quickly tell you what the eight are yeah. as well. Yeah. So the three that are about the human connection aspect of Codron, right, yeah. are peer support rather than peer coaching, like I had mentioned, mm-hmm. active listening. And so we kind of train people to, you know, practice giving the person your full undivided attention, minimize distractions while you're checking in with your you know, co-drum partner mm. and confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So that, and then the other five are more about the follow through part of co-drum oh, that you yeah. follow through. And that's just the idea of accountability. And briefly, the literature talks about legitimate and accountability versus illegitimate accountability. What's the difference? What are those? And, Illegitimate accountability is being held accountable for something that you're not choosing or Mm. to someone that you're not choosing to be accountable to. Mm. And so, you know, in a hierarchical corporate environment, sometimes it can feel like illegitimate accountability. If you have something thrown at you that you didn't know you had to work on or working on, Mm. or you're reporting to someone. So Cojourn is based in legitimate accountability, which means that you're getting to choose what it is you're being exactly it, what it is that you're being held accountable accountable for mm-hmm. and you're choosing the person who are who's holding you accountable for that yes. and you know it's supposed to be a much more successful form of accountability because you're opting in i mean i guess if you 
choose a job, you're opting into that accountability. Oh, so, so, yeah, exactly. It depends on the, on the case. And so anyways, accountability is one. And then, as I mentioned, a singular focus on one broad area, mm. you know, we let people make code on what they needed to be for themselves, but we encourage them to try to start with a broad, you know, one broad area. And then the spirit of celebration and then um, having a self-compassionate approach to change. Ah. Oh, and in our nice. interviews, overwhelmingly, everybody says that that's what had the biggest influence on them. That yeah. and practicing active listening, because it seeps into other areas of your life. But because we can be so hard on ourselves and, you know, it can be so hard to remember to be compassionate with ourselves that your coach and partner's goal is to remind you. So if you didn't do your goals, right? Well, it's really about be like, okay, you didn't get them done. You know, let's talk about what happened and, and really looking for, you know, forward. Like, well, what, what might make sense for this week? Drawing on a lot of the, you know, research by um, Kristen Neff and other researchers in neuroscience that when we're compassionate with ourselves, we're actually more likely long-term to follow through on what we want to do than if we beat ourselves up. That's hugely important. Actually, it's neat that it's within sort of the... the main foundations of the framework because so much about accountability has that mm, that kind of rah-rah motivational coach you're just you know uh just put on your sneakers and get going just lift that weight you know what I mean like if I yell at you enough it'll 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 shame you into doing it right and and that what will keep you doing it is feeling bad and that's never borne out really, but or at least it, it is borne out very short term. And then all the research says it doesn't, that, all the research plus anybody with a gym membership in January knows that it doesn't last beyond the first four or five weeks. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And in our interviews, people say, this is the first time I haven't felt like I had to lie. Mm. Which is huge, you know, and I I share this in the book, but I remember I was paired with a colleague named Oscar a number of years ago, and I had made, I was trying a week without sugar because I had read all about it and, you know, and I um, taught a particularly stressful day-long seminar on sexism, co-taught it, and and I came home and I bought multiple packs of M&Ms and I swirled them together. I had like peanut butter. And caramel, you know, or something. And I was like, oh, and I ate the entire bowl, which for me is a lot of sugar. And yeah. and I remember kind of giggling, like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to report to Oscar. But there was this lightness about it and non-shaming. And, you know, I told him, I confessed, and we had a huge laugh. And he's like, gosh, that must have been a stressful sexism. But I was like, it was. <laughs> But then we like brainstormed together, you know, okay, I'm going to try again next week. Maybe not be so drastic, like no sugar, but have maybe try experiment with a couple of things in place that I could try when I want to buy three packs of ever, you know, like, like maybe go for a walk first and then, or, or whatever. And it was so like, just beautifully human. And he didn't have the same struggles with sugar as me in life, you know, but Mm. I felt so not shamed. Yeah. And willing to then try again, you know, and I still struggle with my relationship with sugar, but I've really gotten a lot further in figuring it out without right. having to be so rigid. Right. Yeah, because you can experiment and not have any, like there are consequences, but they're supportive consequences. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then people talk about how that infiltrates into 
many other areas of their life. And so that feels exciting to support people to be able to be kinder to themselves so that they can show up more the way they want to and also be able to be more compassionate to others. Mm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you're, I was about to say you can't really be compassionate to others if you're not compassionate to yourself. I think you can and it burns you out real fast. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think you can be sustainable. Actually, goes into how I think about nonprofits that, don't have an eye on the bottom line is you can't stay open and continue your mission. So it's like a version of that. Like if you, if you don't learn how to practice self-compassion, you can't sustainably help people for a long run. You can do it for a flaming little while. And then you're just, there's nothing left of you. Right. (laughs) Um, But I love that. I love that. It's one of the sort of pillars of, what you're doing is that self-compassion thing. Mm-hmm. Why eight? That was when we, we created it. We're like, Oh, and the last one is that we have people sign a contract. I forgot to say that when oh, you okay. start and you write, you know, the day you're going to meet in the time, which of course is negotiable over time, but, and you both sign it. Mm-hmm. And so if you're really making that commitment, that's right. The core component is commitment. But part of that is you're signing a contract to a set period of time. When we created Coacher and it was for a year, it's like keep your New Year's resolution for a whole year. And then we discovered that that's sort of a scary amount of time I think, for a lot of people to just sign up for something. So, yeah. so we offer it for 12 weeks, which I feel like is the minimum to be able to build the relationship and really get into the flow, you know, to have some change. And then most people decide to finish and do a whole year afterward, which mm. has been interesting to see, you know, once they get or choose a different area of focus and maybe do it for 12 weeks. Right. But um, they were just what Carl and I created when we made it for ourselves. Okay. We had seven of them. And you know, the self-compassion piece came because we were both a hot mess. And we, I was like, I don't want one more reason to feel bad about myself. So like, let's just put that in. So none of it was like, let's put in research-backed strategies at the start. They were just things we knew, things we're learning, or that intuitive felt right for us. And then later, you know, we discovered all the literature around the benefits of self-compassion. Right. Yeah. So we added the eighth one that we added was the spirit of celebration. We always had that as an inherent part of it based just on who we are, but we hadn't articulated it as a core component until we wrote the book. It's a big one, especially if people are really used to kind of grinding and they're like, Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to take this on. So as someone who can keep me on track and, and then they just like get something done and they're like, check it off. What's next? Like there's always more next. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I've uh, not known a lot of people like this, including someone I look at in the mirror, the need to just say, you did something like, take a second, you did something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Something I cre- I created for myself after maybe the second year of Cojourn that I, I talk about when we do, we sometimes do workshops on just some of the core components, mm-hmm. like here to celebration. But I it's similar to a gratitude jar, but I call it a magic jar. And I have little slips of paper and any time a moment 
that I want to remember or savor happens. And it can be like an interesting moment with a bird on a walk. You know, it doesn't have to be. Or I facilitate a workshop that feels really powerful. Or I laugh really hard with my best friend or my goddaughter. I write, you know, the date and I write what happened and I throw it in the jar. And I usually do it started at the new year. And then on New Year's Eve, I empty out my whole jar. And I read through these little moments of magic throughout the year. Oh, that's nice. And it's such a beautiful ritual. And then I take a picture of any of them that involves someone else and I'll text it to them. Aww. You know, say, and somebody will read something like, oh, last February, Molly and I went on a snowshoe and we laughed about, you know, and it's Aww. a really lovely way to bring other people into that as well. It is really nice. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Sort of, uh, well, there's a, someone was pointing out that there was no opposite phrase to trigger warning. And I thought about that for a couple of days and I was like, glimmer signals. Oh, that's beautiful. Like just those things, like when you see, when, when you're just walking the dog and there's like a flash of red and you're like, oh, that's a cardinal. And you just kind of appreciate how incredibly red it looks against like the snow. Mm-hmm. And you're like, great. There's a, there's a, there's somebody's yard light. One of my favorite walks for the dog through Deerfield Mass. Something about this light just prisms onto the ground if you're there after dark. And I, uh, it's beautiful. Like, it's so arrestingly beautiful. <laughs> I was like, bam, that's a glimmer signal. That's like... Oh, I love just, that phrase. Yeah, just, just that thing. Just, and, and allowing yourself to have a way to talk about it so that you know you've been triggered into something happy, basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I love the idea of doing it as sort of a, you know, formalized and, and the thing where you actually connect again with people that you did something fun. I mean, I, the closest thing I've, I have to that is when Facebook puts up like a picture of something fun I did and says, hey, you did something fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, right, I could build it for myself and keep Mark Zuckerberg out of the middle of that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. And so in many ways, you know, it sounds to me like um, it's, it's so funny. Sometimes I like I have these three things, right? Work, community and creativity. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, and it's funny because you mentioned Eisenberg before. So I, I got an MBA a couple of years ago in Dublin, Ireland. I went to Trinity College and there's a huge emphasis on asking everybody what they do. Uh. That is not the happiest story for like most people even if they do an interesting job there's the the discussions sort of begin and end with this sort of networking there's usually a trying to peg the status of someone and whether they're useful to you or you're useful to them if you ask them about what they do but if you ask them what do you like to do you get unbelievably interesting answers like the lawyer that I met who was a um, board member on a ballet company and we had a really long talk about the politics of ballet who knew <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say <gasps> yeah and so but for some time for sometimes when I'm talking to people about it and on this podcast I just end up some people just have the circles real close and some people I had an engineering guy who is a boat builder and it was like that those are only vaguely connected circles. So do you find that you sort of have this community building within your work and within your music? Or do you do 
I mean, you also have it within your university work, I guess. Anyway, you want to talk about your community and... Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel like a lot of it is inherent in the work that I do or what I'm involved with mm-hmm. uh, in different ways. I live in a community at Laurel Park in Northampton. Oh, that's fun. That's like, it's not an intentional community, but it's these little cottages where they have, yeah. and I Right, exactly. And I've been... I'm just going to do a footnote real quick. It was a Methodist summer camp that became a Methodist, like, non-summer camp that ultimately just became a neighborhood. Exactly. And yeah, and there are ways in which that the Methodist, you know, camp still has a nonprofit, Laurel Park Art. Really? And for a number of years, I have, I'm not involved anymore just because of other th- you know, things pulling at my, at my time in different ways. Mm-hmm. But um, I was involved with Laurel Park arts, arts in different ways and sort of in the more immediate neighborhood. I didn't but. know that anything was left. How interesting. But I, know, I do know they're incredibly adorable, teeny tiny Victorians. Yes, yes. And my sister has the one across the street, which is like my childhood fantasy come true to run across the street to my sister's house. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Wow. Why why did you decide to, was was it because she was there first or? I was here first. I um, moved here maybe 14 years ago, but I um, had a dear friend who lived across the green here and I fell in love with the little cottages and Yeah, and I was starting graduate school, and I had a roommate, and yeah, it was. I, it's been a great place to be. Oh, that's pretty neat. And your sister moved in because you were there. Yeah, she, <laughs> she well, she actually fell in love with the house. She moved from Boston and had been looking at a few other places, but it was the coolest. She, she, I feel like she got the coolest cottage in in Laurel Park. It was <laughs> sold by owner, and I found out sort of early that it was for sale, and and it's been such a gift, especially during the pandemic, to have her right here across the street. We walk the dogs together, and we stop by all the time. Nice, nice. And so, is that? Has it become an, I mean, intentional community co-housing, that kind of thing, has it become kind of like that? Is there, is it run cooperatively or not? They have a condo association board, you know, that type Mm -hmm. of, but there's no required community aspects. They have coffee hour in the summer and they have a few different social events and things like that, but it, it different from co-housing in that way, but you can be as involved as you want to be. They have a, group garden and um, other activities. They've done a really beautiful job, especially in recent years and reviving things in different ways. Mm. Mm. Well, so if you had, you know, a winning lottery ticket, a million dollars tomorrow, what would you do next? Oh, big question. To be perfectly honest, I don't think it would be that much different from what I am doing, which feels exciting yes. to say. Yeah. I would keep teaching part-time at the college because I love doing that so much and keep building Cojourn. But I think what I would do is put money toward helping us figure out how to get the word out, how to improve the business, how to um, get all of our materials, you know, in video form so that we can share it with more people. Mm. And maybe have a retreat by the ocean <laughs> while I plan it all. <laughs> I love the ocean. <laughs> like an internal retreat, like a board retreat kind of a thing, or or like yeah. uh, everybody or who maybe, does this or, just, or just me. <laughs> Either. Oh, I, would, I, I would love that. We, you know, a student asked me that question recently in class. They were doing a 
taking turns doing the get to know you round questions. And it was like, what is your dream job? And I really was able to say, I feel like I have it right now. Nice. Which feels exciting it to is. be in that place. It's exciting to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, what is your website? Oh, it's www.cojourn.org and it's C-O-J-O-U-R-N. Nice. Nice. Nice name for it, too. I've thought a lot about it since first talking to you. It's a great name. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's got a lot of nice little layers to it. And yeah. I give credit my cousin's husband. We used to be called something different. And he said, oh, you have to change the name. And we were brainstorming. He came up with Cojourn. Yeah. Yeah. I have helped several places and, and clients figure out names. And there's a book called Don't Call It That that we often use. <laughs> Oh, I'm very sensitized to things that I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, we <laughs> so, were before called the co-accountant project, oh, yeah, see, sort yeah. of like accountability. Yeah. And everyone thought we were an accounting firm. Yeah, and so that, it really didn't work. That's definitely a don't call it that. Yeah, it's <laughs> not terrible, uh, but it's not quite right. Yeah, no, it's pretty terrible. The tagline is stay the path with together help. So we always mm. like to talk about the individualistic self-help. And then we're really about the together help. So well, you know, Honestly, and I know it's kind of a footnote because because we're sort of coming into the end of the hour, but that is one of the things that I'm very heartened to see. You know, it's very, very easy to find stuff that's like self-help, just you, just, you know, bootstrap it. And I don't think that's nearly as sustainable or satisfying or... Yeah, or fun. Or fun <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It's back to that sort of bowling alone. <laughs> exactly. And we get to back each other and see each other's humanity. And there's yeah. so much value in that. Yeah. 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 This has been so much fun. Thanks for sharing all this. I really love to learn about it. Oh, yes. It's it such a joy to be with you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Molly Keene for being a guest. The first half of our discussion, as well as past episodes, links, social media, and more, can be found at our website, working9to-thrive.com, and that's with the number nine.